Well, good morning, and uh, I'll add to that and just want to encourage you to go, go see Laura after the service and find out a little bit more about camp. Uh, she's got candy out there, if, it, if that's what it takes to get you to the table, but we want to, want to make sure that you, uh, you know what's going on and uh, how you can be a part. If you have kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, uh, encourage them to go to camp, and they'll have a, a great time as they learn more about their Lord in, a, in an environment that will just be conducive to lots of laughter and and lots of fun. Um, if you have your Bibles, join me in James chapter 2, and we're going to finish up chapter 2 today. The title of the message this morning is, Is It Real? Is It Real? As we continue our series, Faith at Work, we're going to discover that this is kind of the, the cornerstone of, of James's argument. This is, it's been building now, and it's going to kind of crescendo here in chapter 2. I told you that James does not mince word. He's, he's very blunt. He's very in your face. And we're going to see that very clearly here in, in the end of James chapter 2, as he's going to talk about how our faith needs to be at work. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I, when my wife and I as, I, as I thought about this title, Is It Real?, I was reminded of when we lived over in China. And oftentimes we would go shopping, we'd want to go clothes shopping or even grocery shopping at different stores. And, and often one of the questions we would have to ask or try to get to the bottom of is, is, is this the real thing or is this a fake? Is this a counterfeit? Um, it seemed like everywhere you go, there, there was no end to the, the knockoffs that you could find there. Different, whether it was sportswear, or I remember looking for golf clubs, trying to find the real thing, and, and there are knockoffs everywhere. Uh, the fakes were easy to, easy to find, but not always easy to spot. And uh, in fact, I remember one time, and oftentimes though, after a while of looking, you, you would begin to see that They'd make errors in the spelling of the, the brand name, so to speak. I remember my, my wife bought a shirt one time, and she thought she was buying an Adidas shirt. And we got it home, and uh, we looked at it more closely, and it said Adiads. Um, they had, they'd gotten the, the words mixed around a little bit. I, I, in fact, I read when we were over there that they even uh, busted a, a counterfeit beer ring. If you can believe it, they were counterfeiting beer. They were taking really cheap beer, and they were trying to bottle it in in more expensive beer bottles and pass it off as the real thing. And so it's like everywhere you go, there were fakes, there were imitations. And as, as we think about James chapter 2 today, James wants to point out that it is so important that our faith be the real thing, that we don't uh, try to imitate, that we're not playing games, that we're not, we're not faking and posing, but that it is the real thing in our life. And he's going to point out some, some things that need to be true if our faith is, is the real deal. Uh, works and faith are mentioned. Uh, works are mentioned twelve times here in this chapter. Faith is mentioned eleven times. That's the that's the real thrust of what he's saying, in the, in the, how the two of them need to go together so that our faith is proved to be genuine. So if you found your place in James chapter two, we're going to read verses fourteen to the end of the chapter, and I'd love if you followed along as I read, beginning at James chapter two, verse fourteen. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without, living, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. 
You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If you're following along in the notes, we're going to look at two main areas today. Uh, we're going to look at dead faith and dynamic faith. James is going to contrast the two and help us see the difference in where we need to land. And so as we think about, is it real? The first thing we want to look at is the dead faith. James comes right out of the gates in verse 14 and says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? This dead faith James asks kind of a rhetorical question and says, can such a faith, one that doesn't have any works at all, can that faith save them? And the implied answer is no. No. Someone's got to have real genuine faith that produces works for it to be saving faith. Jesus taught the same thing. That if you're a Christian, your works need to manifest and demonstrate the reality of your profession. In Matthew 7, Verses, um, I think we got a slide for that. Verses 16 through 21, it says, uh, he, told, he told the people, he says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Then you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If you had planted an orchard and the trees matured to the point where they were ready to bear fruit and it's in season now and and all these trees are starting to produce fruit, but you have one right in the middle of the, the orchard that has just got nothing. The branches are bare. They're, they're starting to break off when the wind picks up or a storm comes by. You always see fresh branches on the ground. It, it just looks gnarled. It's, it's pretty obvious that it's dead. And the fact that there are no fruit hanging from the branches bear that out. And you get ready to cut down and, and maybe your business partner comes along and says, no, 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 don't, don't cut this tree down. It's still good. It's, it's a good tree. And, and you will point around to the other trees and say, look, they've all got fruit on them and this one doesn't. It's clearly, it's evident that it's dead. There's, there's nothing there. What James is pointing out in this passage is that our faith is the same way. People should be able to look at our lives and see fruit. If there is real, genuine, viable faith, a changed heart, James said there should be something to show for it. As you think about that, uh, in your notes, I want us to think about the characteristics of dead faith. This passage makes it clear that 
that dead faith is only talk. It's someone who goes about and, and goes through the motions. In fact, in that passage in Matthew 7, Jesus said at the end of the age, there will be people who said, say to me, Lord, Lord. And he, he says, I'll, I'll say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. They, they went through the motions. They, they knew God's name. Maybe they even went to church. They knew some, some Christian lingo. They, they had some, some motions about them. They, had, they, they knew how to talk a good game. But at the end of the day, the fruit was not there. In this person's mind, there's a separation between word and deed. And so long as I believe the right things or I, or I say the right things, I'm okay. But James comes by and demolishes that line of thinking. In fact, verse 18, he introduces a, a, a kind of a, a, a supposed opponent. He says, well, someone will say, well, you've got faith and I've got works. The, the NASB translates it well. Uh, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. And James is saying, uh, well, show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You can't come along and say, well, this is my niche. I'm just a person of faith. That's all I do. I'm just the faith guy, okay? That's my contribution to the body. James says you can't do that. You can't separate the faith and the works guy. The, the two have to be brought together. And if, if the works do not follow faith, it's evidence that it's a dead faith, a non-existent faith. And he wants to give us a few examples of this. And so he, he tells us two. The first example of dead faith is the cold, hungry neighbor. The cold and hungry neighbor. In verse 15, he says, If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In this illustration that James gives us, he's talking about another Christian. He says a brother or a sister. This is someone that should, should be part of our, our care, someone within your flock, someone that you see and you clearly notice the needs. And he says, let's say they're poorly clothed and they're lacking in daily food. The, the, the phrase there, poorly clothed, could literally mean naked. It's, it's not someone who, who may not have the latest and greatest fashions. You know, here in the U.S., we might see someone and, and maybe they shop at a consignment store and you, you might think, oh, that's too bad for them. They've, they're, not, they're not well clothed. That's not what he's talking about at all. Uh, he's talking about someone who literally is, is either wearing nothing or wearing strips of clothing, just rags tied together to, to try to come up and give themselves some warmth. I mean, this is a person who is destitute, and it's a, very apparent. He says they're lacking in, in, in daily provisions. They don't, they don't have food. They're starving. Maybe you can see their ribs beginning to pop out from beneath their skin. And in the tense of the verb indicates that it's even an ongoing thing, that they've been poorly clothed and been lacking in food. And, and you see them, and he says, this is what dead faith does. You come up to them, and you put your arm around them, and say, oh, it's great to see you, brother. Oh, I'm so glad that I ran into you. I just want you to know that I love you, and I hope you have a marvelous day. God bless you. And you walk on your way. 
In fact, the, the language indicates that, that they were being hyper-spiritual about it. The, the, there's a past tense that he says, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. Like the, like the it's, it's being pushed off on God. May God take care of you. I hope God provides for you. And what God is saying, listen, I sent them into your life so that they would be provided for. It's, it's you who I'm calling to do this. It's you who I'm calling to put your faith into action and, and minister to these people who so obviously and desperately need help. But he says a dead faith is just going to wish them well, maybe even crouch it in spiritual terms. May, may God take care of you. May God bless you. And then you walk away. He, he says, what good is that? What use is a faith like that? If this person still walks away with blue lips and a hungry belly, he says, that's an empty faith. That's a, that's a dead faith. Scripture speaks about this elsewhere. 1 John three, seventeen and 18 says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. We need to be people who don't just talk a good game, who don't just run circles around people with our biblical knowledge or theological arguments, and then do nothing to help serve and minister to the people. God calls us to be people who come alongside those who are needy. Can you see how this ties in with his argument from last week? He said, when you minister to those in need, you're, you're giving an example of true, vibrant, living faith. But when you turn your back on them, he says, you illustrate that your faith is dead. Secondly, a second example is that of demons. He goes to the demons and verse 19 goes on to say, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. A Hebrew reader of this verse, which, which most of James' recipients were, probably had a Jewish background, they would immediately see the reference to the Shema in this verse, verse 19. You believe God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Lord, or hear, O Israel, our God is one. And that was something that they recited, something they committed to memory. And he's saying, listen, you might have the right theology. You can recite the things you learned as a kid in school. You know your Bible. We believe God is one. We, we know our doctrine. He says, that's, that's fantastic. He said, and he gets a little bit sarcastic here. He said, I'm, I'm glad you have your beliefs lined up. But he said, even the demons believe in God. And they shudder. Like, even the demons respond, have some sort of response to the things they claim to believe. The idea for the word shudder is, is the word tremble. It, it's not just a slight shuddering, like you got chills up your spine, but it refers to the uncontainable, uncontrollable, violent shaking of extreme fear. He says, listen, even demons have a response to their monotheism. I mean, they don't have saving faith, but they do believe in, in God. They, they have some sort of knowledge that there's a God. There's no, there's no atheist in hell. There's no atheist, um, atheist demons. Satan is not an atheist. They, they believe in a God, and he said they even, they even shudder at the very thought. 
of this holy, transcendent God who will one day judge and punish them. And he says, yet, you, you claim to believe these things, and yet there's no response, there's no fruit, there's, there's no awe of God. That's, that's James' description of a dead faith. And as we think about where we're at in our walk with the Lord, I, I hope that, that these things aren't true of us. Rather, I hope that, as James is going to go on to say, that, that our lives show the evidence of a dynamic faith. Of a dynamic faith. Some of the characteristics of a dynamic faith, it, well, it's simply that faith produces fruit. There's outward evidence. Faith is at work. Faith is active. The last verse of the chapter says, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so faith, also, for, so faith apart from works is dead. If we're to have an active, a living, a dynamic faith, works must be intertwined and flowing out of our belief. Martin Luther said, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it's already done them. It's always at the doing of them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. He gropes and looks about after faith and good works. He knows neither what faith is nor what good works are, though he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. Someone who has a dynamic faith, at some point they end their talking and they begin their doing. Maybe they're doing while they're talking. I don't know, but the, the point is, is that there's not a separation, but a joining together of faith and works. Now he's going to give some examples of this dynamic faith. We saw two examples of, of dead faith, but he goes on to tell us that there are two biblical people that well illustrate living faith. The first one is Abraham. The first one is Abraham. And the Jewish listeners and readers of this letter would have jumped for joy. Yeah, he's our man, Abraham. He's the best. We love Abraham. They think about all that he did. He was the patriarch of their faith, one they looked up to. And so we're told here in verse 21 through 23, he says, Was not our father Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, so that his faith, faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it counted to him as righteous, and he was called a friend of God. That last scripture quotation was from Genesis chapter 12, which actually took place before he evidenced his faith by being willing to offer up Isaac on the altar. So Genesis 12 told us Abraham believed God and it counted to him as righteousness. He trusted God and God says that, that he was counted righteous through his faith. He was not saved by works, but he was saved through faith. And then here in this passage, it tells us that that faith exhibited itself by being willing to be obedient to God in, in the specific example it gave is when he took up Isaac onto Mount Moriah. Now, I don't know if you've ever let yourself think through this a little bit. Many parents have sat and put themselves into this scenario. And you just, it's almost overwhelming when you start to think about it. God coming to you one day and this child you've waited your whole life for. It's a, a literal miracle 
as Abraham and Sarai were like 90 and 100 when he was born. Like that's not explainable by natural causes. That's flat out miracle. And this miracle child whom you love and you, you know that God has promised to bless and have like crazy offspring and the, the whole earth is going to be blessed through the seed. All of a sudden now God comes to you and says, I want you to take your son Isaac. I want you to go up that mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. And you just begin to think through the, the agonizing journey up Mount Moriah as, as they're walking together. What must have been going through each of their minds, especially Abraham. Abraham knew it was coming. Isaac didn't. In fact, Isaac even asked, Father, where's the sacrifice? I can't even imagine being able to, to speak the words through choking back sobs as Abraham says, God, God will provide a sacrifice. Our Lord will take care of us. And the agony that it must have been laying Isaac on the altar and his eyes getting big with the realization of what was to happen. He probably started crying. And you're holding him down and holding the dagger. and You're ready to be obedient to God. And all of a sudden, God stays his hand and says, now I know. Now I know. Because you are willing to sacrifice. You are willing to obey me. Now I know that you love me. Abraham's faith evidenced itself by being willing to obey even when it was harder than any of us could ever imagine. I mean, what has God called any of us to that could compare to that? Witnessing to a snarky co-worker? I mean, to, to, to call us to to love someone who uh, gets under our skin a little bit? I mean, that's some serious obedience. And what, what James is arguing here is that that obedience demonstrated the reality of his faith. That action did not save him, but it demonstrated that there was a true living and a vibrant faith. Now, I want to take just a, a moment to have a parenthesis here, go on just a, a short excursus, because I, I don't want to pass over a couple of verses that I think are really troubling if we don't understand them in the context. He told us in verse 21, he said, um, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? And then verse 24 goes on and says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, if you're listening carefully and you know your New Testament, you know that sounds almost ex like the exact opposite of what the Apostle Paul taught in Romans and Galatians. Romans 3.28 says, We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Okay, so James is saying you're justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul is saying you're justified by faith apart from works. So which is it, guys? You've got to get on the same page here. Is it, are they contradicting each other? Are they, they uh, fighting and arguing as to the means of salvation? I don't think so. I don't think so. Scripture is very clear that we are only saved by faith in Jesus Christ, that our works cannot get us to heaven. Isaiah told us that all of our righteousness, all of our good works that we produce in and of ourselves are filthy rags. They can't earn God's favor. The only one that is acceptable to God is Jesus Christ. And so we have to place our faith in Jesus Christ if we're to be saved. Salvation is by faith alone. 
But it's so important, and I think the distinction between these different texts becomes clear when you understand that Paul and James were dealing with two different problems as they were writing. Listen carefully. Paul was dealing with a concern, can I become a Christian by good works? If I'm good enough, can I be saved? That was the issue Paul was dealing with. And his answer was a resounding, no, you can't earn your salvation by good works. But James is dealing with an entirely different question. And that is, can I be a Christian without good works? Can I live my life however I want to and consider myself saved? And the answer to that question is also no. In fact, I've heard it said that James and Paul are not antagonistics, antagonists fighting each other with cross swords, but rather they stand back to back, confronting different foes of the gospel. Paul was attacking the belief that works were necessary for salvation. James was attacking that a verbal faith did not produce godliness in life. And so they both had their, their issues that they were dealing with. And, it, and it's so important to understand that they are not in disagreement. Augustine perhaps best resolves the tension between Paul and James on the issue of faith and works when he says, Paul said that a man is justified through faith without the works of the law, but not without those works of which James speaks. Another way of putting it is that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. We can only have a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. But what he's saying here is that when we do that, God comes into our life and transforms us so that we begin to live holy lives. We have a desire to please God. And that if our life is devoid of works, if our life is devoid of a desire to please God, then he says that transformation has never taken place. James is very in our face But it's because he's concerned about the souls of the people that he was ministering to that he is so bold. But Abraham's not the only example that he gives of dynamic faith. He goes on and gives another illustration, and he mentions Rahab. Now, Rahab and Abraham couldn't be probably more polar opposite examples. Abraham was like the man in Judaism. And, and Rahab, not only was she a woman, not only was she a Gentile, but she was a prostitute. And she was one of those ones that showed up in, in their history, and they're kind of like, well, we're glad for what she did, but let's not, let's not make too big of a deal out of it, because we don't want people talking. You remember the story, right? We won't, we won't turn there, but it's in Joshua 2, if you want to read it later. She was there in Jericho. The spies came from Joshua in to spy out the land, to check things out, and Um, they came and they stopped at her place and the people of the town heard it and so some men came to 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 arrest the two spies and she Rahab hid them underneath her roof underneath the flax on her roof until everybody was gone and she said the coast is clear and then she said please you know she she goes on and she says she's got some good theology she says I know the Lord's given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you, for we've heard the Lord dried up the water, the Red Sea. And she goes on to, to explain some of the things they heard. And she says, we, Our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And what James is telling us here is that that was not just some, some verbal commitment to a, a God that she had no intention of following. But that her, her faith, her trust, 
Her, her belief in this God produced works. It, it became evident in her life as she stepped out in faith and hid the spies. And we know later on then that God saved and protected her family as the Israelites came in. And we learn then from the New Testament, she's actually in the lineage of Christ. How amazing is that? James wants us to understand from these two examples that dynamic faith produces itself in good works. It doesn't always look the same for all of us. God's not going to ask all of us great and, and just, you know, we might not have Mount Moriah requests from God coming to us. God may not call all of us to things like martyrdom and in some of the, the big tests of our faith that we might think of, but God calls us every day to live out our faith and to produce good works. And he used two examples to indicate and remind us that that is absolutely essential to being a Christian. So as we think about how this applies to our life right here and right now, I want us to ask ourselves some questions, five questions. There's not blanks for these, but you can kind of fill them in or jot them down if, if you'd like. But before we get to them, I want, I want us to, I just, I just feel like I have to make mention of this. James is not writing, James is not writing to new Christians here. Or, or a believer who's going through a time in his life where he's really battling a, a sin issue, or, or maybe he's, he's just discouraged, um, is, is struggling with lukewarmness. He, he's, he's not writing to those who are in a moment struggling. He's writing to people who, have a, who have, are exhibiting a lifestyle of, I don't care about my works, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> He's not writing to someone who just got saved and doesn't understand the basics of faith. And so I, I want you to know that if you're here and you are, are a follower of Christ, maybe you've gotten saved and you think, I'm just kind of learning about some of this stuff. I hope James is not coming down on me so hard here. I, I want you to understand that that that's not who he's writing to. He's writing to people who call themselves Christians, who say I'm a believer, but they've got nothing to show for it. First question I, just, I think we need to ask is, have I checked my heart? Have I checked my heart? Second um, Corinthians 13.5 says to examine ourselves, to see whether we're in the faith. He says, test yourselves, or, or do you realize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Those were some harsh words that were spoken to Corinthian Christians, a church that was involved in a lot of wicked behavior. And Paul recognized that scattered among the believers, there were probably people who didn't know Jesus, who hadn't actually trusted him as their Savior, but they, had, they were involved in the community of believers. They were maybe going to church, taking communion or whatever, and, and they were blending in. But he says, listen, you need to look at your heart and have you really ever trusted Christ as your Savior? Do you really have a, a true faith or are you just, is it an empty profession? Or are you just going through the motions? Secondly, ask yourself, do I, do I ever repent? Do I ever, ever, ever ask forgiveness at all? Do I ever admit that I'm wrong? I mean, I'm talking about before God, but also before others. Do I ever go to God and and say, God, I, I need your grace today. I have sinned. I have rebelled against you. I've, I'm calling upon you for forgiveness. See, someone who has dead faith, it's not going to bother them. They're okay with sin. They're going to be able to shrug it off. Ah, you know, as long as nobody gets hurt, it's fine. 
But if, you're, if you have true living faith, a dynamic faith, the Holy Spirit's going to convict you. You're, you're not going to be okay with sin. You're not going to be okay with brushing it aside or excusing it. But God is going to keep pressing that upon your heart until, until you turn from it. If my pride always keeps me from repenting, that's a problem. If sin in my heart is brought to my attention and I can just shrug it off, that's a problem. Thirdly, has there been any change in me? Has there ever been change? Maybe this is a question best asked to someone who knows you well. But can I or others look back on the course of my life? Six months, a year, two years, ten years. Can, can they see the work and the fruit of God living and working in my life? I realize that spiritual growth can be like this a lot of times. We have periods where we're really growing and surging, and then others where we plateau or somewhere we may stumble and struggle. But there should be continual growth in our life, and, and it should be evident to others. Fourthly, ask yourself, do I love other people? Do I love others? 1 John 3.10 tells us that by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We can't call ourselves Christians and be unloving towards people, pick and choose who we want to show God's grace to. This is a evidence of a changed life, of someone who is a true child of God is that they love their brother. And lastly, another good question to ask is, can people see my love for God and others? Is it evident to those around me that I, I love God with all my heart, soul, and mind, and that I'm loving others as myself? Does anybody see that, or is it all just inward fruit, so to speak? I, I, in fact, I read a commentator that said that, that this fruit that James is talking about could all be internal fruit that's only seen by you and God. I thought, that's it's ridiculous. It goes against everything that he's trying to say here. Can other people see the evidence in your life? I, I, I know this is a, this is a really in-your-face passage. It's, it's very bold and forward. And, and you might be thinking, man... Thanks for the daily dose of discouragement here. I mean, I, the, uh, I'm going to walk out here. I thought I was a Christian when I came in here. I'm not, not sure. James is not writing to create doubt where doubt shouldn't be. But what he is doing is he's writing to create doubt where it should be. He's writing to cause everyone who has made, who's made a false profession of faith, who is just going through the motions and has never had an inward change, to see that they are deceived. And this morning, I just, I just want you to feel the weight of this passage. God is concerned about having true disciples, about people who are genuinely saved. And we don't, nor does he want to give the, a, a false impression and pat someone on the head and say, you're okay, you're fine, it's no big deal, when it's not fine and it is a big deal. Only those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, who are transformed from the inside out, and are beginning to exhibit the fruit of their faith, are God's children. 
And what James wants us to realize is if you're going through the motions, if you're just playing the game, you're only fooling yourself. Because at the end of the age, there are going to be people, and I pray that it's no one in this church or in this room, that stand before God and say, Lord, Lord, I, I, I was an American. I'm a Christian. I, I went to church. I, I did stuff that would be pleasing to you. And I would hate for someone here to hear those words from God, depart from me, I never knew you. Because all they had, all those years, was a dead faith, an empty faith. And they were just going through the motions. James challenges us to a dynamic faith, one that, one that produces good works, one that, that is lived out, one that others can see. Hey, that guy's a Christ follower. She loves Jesus. One that produces works. This morning, it, a good question to ask ourselves, is it real? Is my faith truly anchored in the Son of God? And is it producing good works, like Paul says, that are in keeping with repentance so that others can see the reality of the changed life? They can see the outward manifestation of what has taken place in my heart. Let's pray. God, these, these words from James are so bold and so in our face that they're a little bit offensive. We almost want to ask, how dare you? How dare you question my faith? How dare you question and get all nosy? But God, the fact remains, we know that there are people who are walking around and, and they, they think they're fine. They think they're cool with you and they, they think that just by repeating a few words or, or, or praying a prayer that was meaningless to them deep down that, that they're all right. And James reminds us here that without evidence of that faith, they're not all right. God, I ask that if there's somebody in this room who, who maybe it's just dawning on them that I... I've been playing the game. I've been going through the motions my whole life. I've been playing church to keep my wife happy or to, to impress people or because it's just what I've always done Sunday mornings. But I, I, I've never trusted in Christ as my Savior. I, I know God's not living inside of me. I, I know that I, I don't follow Him. I pray that today would be the day that they trust in Jesus as their Savior. They turn from their sins and come to you in faith. God, we thank you that you promised to save all those who call unto your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. God bless. You're dismissed.